Let's pray together before we look at this passage. Father God, we pray that as we've read your word and we hear it preached, that you might use me as your servant to proclaim and teach and preach it faithfully. Lord, I am weak, but you're mighty. I'm far from perfect, but you and your word are perfect, Lord. Useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training us in righteousness. So help us, Lord, to see Jesus, to hear the warning that we read of, to respond rightly in a way that's good for us, glorifying to our Saviour. Father, we ask in his name. Amen. Jason Bourne is the fictional character of some action movies. First slide, please. Who faces the question, who am I? In the movie The Bourne Identity, he's pulled out of the Mediterranean Sea. He has serious wounds but no memory. He thinks in English but he discovers that he can speak French and Russian and German. He has an amazing array of skills. He can run at full speed for hundreds of metres at altitude. He can tie knots. He can disarm police in an instant. Memorises a map of Paris at a glance. He knows all this but he doesn't know who he is. The audience wonders... Who is he? And why are people trying to kill him? Well, long before that, the gospel narratives ask the same question of Jesus. Who is he? And why do some people want to kill him? And I ask you, how should we respond to him? That's a really important question. And today's passage warns us if we don't turn to him and live his way, there will be consequences. Remember last Sunday, what happened on Palm Sunday when Jesus entered Jerusalem and he cleared the temple and lots of people praised him. It's likely now early Monday morning and Jesus is heading back into the city where he sees a fig tree by the road. This tree has leaves on it, but no fruit. No fruit. That's our first point this morning. And points one and four will be the longest. Jesus curses the fig tree by declaring, may no fruit ever come from you again. Now, it's not that Jesus is hangry. I only learnt what that word meant a few months ago, I think. Hungry and angry at the same time, responding in a grumpy outburst. That's not it. Mind you, too often I've been grumpy and impatient when I've got hungry. It is helpful, though, if we understand that on those fig trees, when leaves came out, there would often be little green unripened figs that were edible. And figs were common in Palestine, growing beside the roads, and they they were called poor man's food. Well, still, this cursing, though, is not so much about a punishment of the tree, but a teaching lesson. The cursing and judgment on the tree, which shrivels, points to the fruitless Jewish leaders who will also soon face judgment. When my family first moved into a home at Greensboro, we had a lemon tree right near the back steps and it produced a reasonable crop of fruits, but it was covered with gall wasp and it was in the wrong place. And so we transplanted it to our veggie patch, but after two summers, it didn't grow and it did not produce any fruit. So what do you think has happened? Yes, I cut that tree down and removed 
that fruit tree for, and, and replace it with another. Fruit trees, you see, that don't bear fruit may not last too long. And the fig tree that Jesus came across, it was showy but barren. It had lots of green leaves but no fruit. And Israel was unfruitful too, their leaders especially. Jesus had just visited the temple the day before with its gleaming buildings, gold and jewels. And inside though, there was a den of robbers and thieves. Robbers and hypocrites. They were, you see, they were, was filled with people who were busy with religion and who honoured God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. And so the fig tree was a symbol of Israel's fruitlessness and the judgment, their judgment to come. And that there's a warning here for all of us. No fruit will lead to judgment. When you compare Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 11, with verses 20 to 21, we learn that what likely happened there actually occurred the next day. But as is often the case in Matthew's gospel, he's more concerned with making the points than with getting the details of the chronology laid out. The disciples are amazed that the fig tree withers so quickly and Jesus responds by highlighting that the fruit that can come from faith-filled prayer. Truly I tell you, he says, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you tell this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. In the context, it suggests that believing prayer is one fruit that trust in Jesus brings. It's not really about a faith that moves mountains, for the mountain that Jesus and his disciples were on was likely the, the Temple Mount or the Mount of Olives right near it. And Jesus does go on to say in chapter 24, verse 2, that he promises that the temple will be destroyed. In other words, the mountain Jesus was speaking about was dead religion. And we should want to move that. Indeed, false or dead religion can only be moved by faith in God and prayer. No one in scripture or outside, no one in scripture or in history that I'm aware of has ever thrown a mountain into the sea, literally. And so Jesus says this metaphorically and he's not promising in verse 22 to give us whatever, whatever our hearts desire. Trust is what's emphasized. Trust in God's power to answer prayer. God can, he does answer prayers miraculously though. I just finished reading uh, a book. We can go back to the book, thanks. Uh, book Madness by Jossie Chucko. Jossie's an Indian-Australian who started the mission organisation Impart, which seeks to train church planters and reach the unreached peoples of northern India. He tells the story of Shankar, a Nepali, who came to India for work. Shankar got saved and then he became a church planter. He suffered a terrible beating from village locals for sharing Christ at that village. It took him six months to recover from the injuries. He sensed, though, God calling him to return to the village Shankar was filled with fear. He didn't want to go. 
but he sensed God's direction persistently. As he entered the village, God said to him, go over to that house and knock on the door. When a man and woman answered, he said, I'm here to pray for you to have a child. The couple burst into tears. We've been trying to have a child for seven years, the husband explained. We've gone to doctors, on holy pilgrimages, nothing works. Shanka said, I'm going to pray to Jesus, the true God. And he did. And they did have a child. That couple after that became Christians. Their testimony was a powerful witness in their village and villages nearby. Within a few months, 20 people had been baptised as believers in Jesus. But I want to suggest to you the miracle wasn't just that the couple had a baby. You see, it was them and others being saved through faith in Jesus. At Bundy, I'm amazed by this, each time we've run the Christianity Explored course, people, at least one each time, has come to trust in Jesus and be saved. I want to suggest to you that that is a miraculous answer to prayer. I love the old hymn by Isaac Watts. We just sung and we'll sing again. Alas, and did my Saviour bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away, was there by faith I received my sight, and now I'm happy or rejoicing all the day. But I think we could equally sing, At the cross, the mountain of my sin rolled away. It was all forgiven. For when we trust in Christ, God brings us from sin to righteousness, from death to life, from Satan to God, from darkness to light, now and forever. We get saved in Jesus' name. And God continues to answer prayers in amazing ways. Yes, that couple conceived a child in answer to Shanker's prayer, but maybe you've endured the ongoing pain of illness or depression, loneliness or infertility, and not had God change your circumstance. But please consider that if you keep trusting in God in that and through that, that that also is a big answer to prayer. Just on Friday, I preached at a funeral for a brother who died in his late 70s from my last church. Um, his disease led him to cerebral palsy led him to lose his ability to walk. He lost his ability to use his hands. He then lost his ability to feed himself. He lost his ability to talk, all while his mind stayed alert. And in this body that degenerated, his faith in the Lord Jesus stayed strong. That was a miracle to me when many would 
it would seem, abandoned their faith in God. He trusted God to the end. God wants you to keep relying on him to provide you with what you need, even when it's not what you want. I love how John Piper puts it. Prayer is an open admission that without Christ we can do nothing. Prayer is the turning away from ourselves to God in the confidence that he will provide the help we need. Prayer humbles us as needy and exalts God as wealthy. So verse 22 isn't a blank check promising that God will give us whatever we want. Prayer with faith involves holding all our affections by the bridle of the word of God and bringing them, our desires, into obedience so that you're praying in line with God's word according to his promises and in Jesus' name and, and so seeking what he wants. And thus, in that case, it will be answered. Or if we are convicted by God that something is his will and we ask for it, not doubting, he will give that. But often we don't know what God's will is. Still, God wants us to keep trusting that he is good. He will give us what is good, good for you, good for the gospel. So I ask, how are you going at this? Trusting God. Faith-filled prayer with a deep reliance on God is a fruit that pleases the Lord. From no fruit we move to no acceptance. Next brief point. Jesus enters the temple. He starts teaching the people who come to him, verse 23, and the chief priests and the elders come and question him. Jesus, the day before, had kicked out the sellers. He'd healed people in the temple in verse 14, and now he's teaching. And they ask, who gives you the rights? Where do you get your authority from to do this? Their question isn't genuine, though. They're not wanting information. Their questioning is credentials, if not trying to trap him. And with great wisdom, Jesus answers their question with a question about John the Baptist. Did he come from human authority or from God's authority? They don't answer. And so neither does Jesus. The Jewish leader's failure and fruitlessness is seen in, in their rejection of John the Baptist and their rejection of Jesus. There's no acceptance of Jesus by them. There's no acceptance that Jesus is the Messiah and King. Maybe you're someone who has not accepted the authority of Jesus either. To help the Jewish leaders see the significance, the seriousness of their response, Jesus tells them three parables. We'll look at two briefly now and the third one next week. The first is covered by our next point, no repentance. A man had two sons. First son was asked to go and work in the vineyard. At first the son said, I don't want to, but he later changed his mind and went. And Do you remember the word repent means to change your mind? And so the first son said no and disobeyed, but then he repented. The other son said, I will go and work in the family vineyard, but then he didn't. 
Now, now the priests and the elders, they answer correctly about which son did the father's will, but they sus- we suspect, don't we, that, that they're blind to the point Jesus is making. And so Jesus makes it plain, verse 31, truly tax collectors and prostitutes are entering God's kingdom before you. For the tax collectors and prostitutes are like the first son who did wrong, disobeyed and sinned, but then repented. They chose to leave behind their great and shameful sins and turn to Jesus. And anyone can come to Jesus, you can. You can come under God's rule by repentance and faith, by turning away from your sin and to Jesus, trusting in him. Whereas the second, the Jewish leaders are like the second son. They talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. They say they follow and obey God, but they refuse to follow God's appointed king, Jesus. They refuse to repent. John the Baptist was in the way of righteousness. He was obedient to God's commands. John taught the truth. He pointed people to and accepted Jesus as king. But as the Jewish leaders didn't repent and believe what John said, they they don't repent at Jesus' words either. They do the same with him because they are rebelling against God. And Jesus rams home the point to them with this next parable, fourth point, no fruit, no escape. Jesus tells this parable about the vineyard and notice the theme of fruit continues. The landowner plants the vineyard, verse 33, and see how the owner does everything that's needed to provide for the vines and protect them and then prepare the, to make sure that the, the vineyard is ready to harvest the grapes. And the owner leases it to vine-growing farmers who do the work. He goes away. And after the harvest time, the owner sends servants to collect the fruit. And what happens? Well, the farmers beat and kill the servants. They don't want to give the owner the fruit which is rightfully his. Graciously, the owner tries again. And the same thing happens. They're saying to the owner, you will get no fruit. No fruit. And while verse 37 is unlikely in real life, the owner sending his son, Jesus is making, his, making a point which we'll come to. But the, the farmers grab him, they throw him out, they kill him. Important background to this is the reading we had earlier from Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah 5 describes the vineyard as God's people, the people of Israel and Judah. We're told God loves his vineyard. God loves his people. But because the vineyard produced no fruit, he will come and trample and destroy that fruitless vineyard. You see, his people kept sinning against God and rejecting him, and so they will be judged. And the vineyard in Jesus' parable is still represents God's people, the Jews. The owner is God. The farmers are the leaders of the Jews. And sadly, the leaders had hurt and killed prophets, the prophets that God had sent. And so the owner God sends his son 
to his vineyard, to his people. That's how a gracious and compassionate God responds to sinners. Comes himself in his son. In verse 38, Jesus is revealing, he knows the Jewish leaders want to kill him. Since chapter 12, verse 14, they've been planning and wanting to kill him. And Jesus knows they will succeed. Remember, it's just a few days until he goes to the cross. The farmers want to take the son's inheritance. Well, they wouldn't succeed in that. It's helpful for us to see that we do the same thing. We live here in this world and live as if it's ours and that everything belongs to me. We live, people live, as if the owner will never come. We look at the world and our stuff, our possessions. We look at our lives and everything we have and we say, mine. We want to be in charge. We want to do what we want with our things. Too often we want our spouse to serve us. We want others to serve us. We want to control our vineyard, our patch, our stuff, our lives. Do it our way. Don't we? We don't give God what he deserves. Our allegiance and obedience and People live as if they'll never be held account, held to account for rejecting God. But sin is foolish. The owner will come. The king will return. A theme we'll see in the weeks to come. Verse 40 asks, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those farmers? He'll completely destroy those terrible men. The leaders are right. There's a play on words here which the NIV brings out better, that he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. The farmers will find there's no escape. They will be judged and killed, and the farm will be given to those who will give the owner his fruit. And Jesus then drives home the point with a scripture from Psalm 118. He says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That is the foundation of the corner. It was the first stone laid in the construction of a building. It provides the foundation. It gives the building its structure and its direction. And Jesus is saying that he is that cornerstone that is vital and central He is the stone the leaders have rejected and he says there will be consequences. In Daniel chapter 2, we're told of another stone. The Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar sees this vision of a great statue. He's told that he is the head of gold with other kings coming under him, represented by the rest of the body. But the, the statue gets destroyed by a stone not made with human hands. It's destroyed by God's kingdom. And Jesus, the king of God's kingdom, is the one who has come to build his kingdom. And when he comes again, he will destroy his enemies and the kingdom of God will fill the whole earth. It will perfectly when he comes again. 
we enjoy the new heavens and new earth. But verse 44 is saying Jesus is the stone who will bring that judgment. You trip over Jesus, you will be broken to pieces. If he comes on you, you will be crushed and shattered to pieces. So you ignore Jesus, you'll suffer the consequences. If you oppose Jesus, you'll also suffer the consequences. Psalm 2 says there's no refuge from the Son, the Son of God, only in the Son. Jesus, the Son of God, was himself crushed to death so we could be saved from judgment ourselves. And only in Jesus do we find salvation and refuge and forgiveness. The chief priests and Pharisees didn't seem to get that the farmers in the parable represented them. But after Jesus makes it explicit, they're offended, verse 46. But for fear of the crowds, they don't act. Please hear that. The the leaders fear the crowds. They fear other people and not the Lord and stone, the Lord and rock, who when he comes again will crush them, will judge and break and shatter them. What a fearsome thought. But hear Jesus' point in verse 43. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people producing its fruit. The theme of fruit began our passage and it ends it. Jesus' statement here foreshadows the Christian church, the rejection of Jesus by most Jews and the gospel going out to save many, many Gentiles, non-Jews. God wants people who will produce fruit, live his way. Christ is the King, the Son of God, who came to save people who will produce fruit. What that fruit looks like and includes, it's not elaborated on or really explained in our passage, but one thing is clear. It involves a right response to Jesus. Instead of rejecting Jesus, the stone, and then being judged and crushed by him, we're all given an opportunity to accept his rule and repent. And his rule is good. His rule is good and just. But will we trust him and love him? Will we serve him and obey him? Will will you find life in him and live for him? Instead of rejecting Jesus, God wants us to say, verse 42, that, that Jesus is wonderful in our eyes. Jesus dying and rising again to reconcile us to God is wonderful in our eyes. I hope it is. Jesus reigns as king and it's wonderful in our eyes. Most will reject him, but he will reign supreme. In the end, and it is wonderful in our eyes. Submitting to Jesus as King and Lord of our lives, it is good, it's wonderful, it is fulfilling. In Him there is life. Living with Him as Lord, a life of ongoing repentance and bearing fruit is worth it. It will be worth it. What fruit does your Saviour 
and king want you to produce. Our many and varied good works are part of that fruit. But please remember, we're not saved by doing good. We do the good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. We're not saved by good works, but to do good works. But this fruit is also very Christ-centered. It's about becoming like him, becoming like Christ, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy, peace and patience, kindness and goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Do others see those things in you? Do those you live with see those qualities in you? Are you showing those qualities more and more over time? And are you displaying those things and growing in those things, not because you're so good at it and strong yourself, not because you're relying on your own strength, but because you're connected to the vine, Jesus. Connected to him by faith and by the Spirit. Are you showing faithfulness to your Savior? Trusting him in your trial, be it long or hard. Long and hard. Are you showing love? A love for God, a love for others from the hearts that's shown in a willingness to sacrifice and serve even suffer for others and ask, what does that look like for you, you showing this love? Teenagers, maybe it means you being patient and kind with your sibling and not putting them down with your words. Or for you, does it mean not controlling your spouse to get what you want? Is it about you caring? Does it involve you caring for your work colleagues and not just about getting the task done? We heard this great line at the Gospel Coalition Conference yesterday. That you, we may not love our work, but we are to love at work. Could your love for others mean that you will call or have coffee with someone from church, someone that needs support, even when you're busy? Maybe it means sacrificing time. Maybe it means you could invite someone home for lunch after church. Or as our growth groups thought about in our six steps to loving our church, it could mean talking to someone you don't know over morning tea, refreshments, even today. Or maybe it will mean that you choose to invite a non-Christian friend to church so they can hear good news, even if there's a risk of rejection. So many different ways to love. And we love because our King saved us and has called us to bear fruit for him. Jesus is the one in authority. If we don't repent, we've been warned that we will not escape judgment. But if we do repent and show that by bearing fruit, we will be welcomed into his kingdom, Jesus' kingdom now and forever. <clears throat> and it is wonderful to have a joy-filled relationship with this king that will not end and will see us through whatever trial comes, even through death. 
So are you showing that Christ is your king by the way you live and the way you love? Let's pray. Father in heaven, when we think about these things and bearing fruit, I and I think we all are convicted of our sin and shortfalls. So often we're fruitless people, only been saved by your grace. We thank you for the sacrifice of our King and Saviour who was crushed to death so that we would never experience the crushing of eternal spiritual death. Thank you, Father, that by your Spirit, through our ongoing relationship with our King Jesus, we can now bear fruit in a way that pleases you. I pray, Lord, for myself and all of us, brothers and sisters here, that we might bear fruit in our lives to the praise of our King, that we might make the gospel attractive by the way we live. We pray that any who have not submitted to him and found life in him, forgiveness in him, that they might repent, change their minds, turn back to and trust in him. He is a good King. So, Lord, we pray that we would live for Jesus this week, every week, for the praise of his glory. Amen.